In today's episode, I speak to Matt Semelhack, the co-founder and CEO of Books, reusable boxes and shipping bags, eliminating single-use plastic and cardboard from e-commerce shipments. The rise of e-commerce has been massive in the last few years and has been further accelerated by the pandemic. I, for myself, can definitely say that I have got crazy amount of boxes arriving at my flat, which always makes me feel a bit guilty because there's a lot of cardboard and plastic landing and waste, unfortunately. So we'll talk about that. And at the same time, even some of the most sustainable options in terms of clothing or food are often just available online. It's very difficult to find those locally sometimes. That's my experience. So that leads to a big question. How can we actually eliminate the negative environmental impact that comes from delivering goods to our homes and all the packaging around them? So I'm excited to talk about that with Matt. Thanks for making the time today and excited to have you. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. Perfect. So let's start with your personal story. What I'd like to know, first of all, is how you got to become an entrepreneur and why do you do what you do now? Yeah, this is something I think about a lot. And I think broadly speaking, I would say that I, if I ever give advice to young younger people or think about my own children, it's always around encouraging them to find something that really compels them to get up out of bed in the morning and go to work. I think in the US especially, there's this kind of challenge that work is sort of a negative, And I don't think it needs to be. I think people say, oh, I have to go to work. I have to go to my job. And it's a little bit old fashioned. But if you can find something you love, it never feels like work in the negative sense. And so that's very much a part of my personal entrepreneurial journey is finding something that I really love to think about and a big challenge that will they will outlive me. It's a challenge that will not be solved in my lifetime. And so it's something I can dedicate my life to. And I think that that's been a big part of it. And I didn't have a very direct path there, but I think I've got there now. I'm excited about what I'm working on. And that really does drive me to do what I do every day. The other big driving force is my children and a very urgent and optimistic desire to leave the planet better than we were handed it, right? Better than it is for them now. And I think that uh, what we're doing at Boots and a lot of different impactful startups and businesses these days is finally feels like the tide is turning to where smart, young, hardworking people want to work for impactful companies, not just to make money, but they can also make money and be successful and wealthy and everything else. But when people ask what's the goal, I think impact is a great word because it implies like environmental impact, social impact, but also you could be famous. And like, there's no doubt that that is at least part of wanting to be an entrepreneur is wanting to have that recognition that you change the world. And so I, I do think that all those things come together. And then very rarely do people say, I want to get rich. But I do think that being extremely impactful, like if you can be impactful at a global level, you'll probably end up doing pretty well. And so like, I, I think all those things together, for me, fall into that word impact. It's very much what drives me every day. My chronology, as I mentioned, is this kind of a winding path. But pretty soon after college, I started a restaurant. And that was my first business that I started. Not the first business you should start <laughs> for other entrepreneurs out there. It's extremely difficult. And maybe that's a reason that I think it's led me down this path of wanting to own something and wanting to be the builder of a thing. Because restaurants have all these different parts that need to come together. And you have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be pretty good at a lot of things. I was not the chef. I was the business person behind the restaurant. And my chef partner is an expert at one thing, right? Which is making delicious food. And so as the restaurateur, you have to kind of learn marketing and sales and construction and legal and HR and people management. And you have to run a budget and you have to know finances pretty well. And that very much characterizes my own personality and my own life is I think I like to know 
a good amount about a lot of things, but I wouldn't say I'm an expert at one thing. And I suspect that's probably the case for many founders of companies. And so I started a restaurant. It turned into uh, nine restaurants eventually, nine different ones. And this is all in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think that was started to lead me down this path of just wanting to build stuff, right? And honestly, looking back, I didn't really love operating the restaurants. I really love starting the restaurants. And there's this flurry of activity, you know, you get this kind of dream up a concept and then see it come to life, raise money, you know, build something, you have it launch, right? Just like a tech product that like you open the restaurant. Um, and then it starts running and then you have to maintain it and you have to optimize it much like any other tech product. You have to market it and you have to have customer service. And so all these same skills were happening in, in the restaurant, but in a very different way, in a very personal way. And I think one of the really special things about restaurants, which is not as true for a lot of technology products, is that you get to see the customer's reaction to your product in real time as they're sitting there in the restaurant eating their food. And that kind of product that you're putting out in real time is incredibly valuable. Right. And now we're trying to apply that to our efforts now. But only in retrospect can I say this. But looking back, it was a really amazing opportunity to kind of iterate something and change it quickly and get customer feedback. And the next day, right, we could change the dish that you're eating in the restaurant. And we could say, oh, well, nobody liked that dish yesterday. So let's make something else today. And that's pretty special. It's a pretty unique angle into product refinement and product development. So I, I was in restaurants for about 10 years. And then I went to work for a company called Thistle, which is a plant-based meal delivery subscription company. A mouthful, literally. I was in operations for that company. This is my first role where it really felt like there was a mission, stated mission, like a written mission behind the company. In that case, it was focused on reducing climate change by helping people eat less meat. And it was a really fantastic, driven bunch of people. And the two founders that were husband and wife were really focused on this idea that they could have an impact and actually reduce climate change. And that one of the best ways to do that would be to help people eat less meat, which I think is well understood to be maybe the number one change that most individuals could make. And the approach was to provide convenient, delicious, and accessible meals that were mostly plants. And so it was not, you have to stop eating meat immediately. You know, it wasn't impossible foods. It wasn't those other things. It was just like, well, if we just made it delicious to eat vegetables, that will help people eat a little less meat. And so they've been very successful. While I was there, I saw that a large percentage of our customers that were receiving these meal kits or finished meals to their door were disappointed in the amount of waste that came with them. So they would say, you know, I signed up for Thistle in order to help me eat more plants and to reduce climate change, but I'm getting all this stuff in the mail. I'm getting a box or a bag and insulation and an ice pack and single-use containers and all these things. And they were saying, hey, this doesn't really add up. I don't feel like this is a good thing for the planet. And you said you were going to help me reduce climate change. And I think that the reality was then that, and still true to some extent, there just wasn't another option. If you wanted to deliver a fresh meal, it had to be in plastic. There's not really a good way to dispose of it. If you want it to be cold, there has to be an ice pack. If you want it to not be exposed to the elements, there needs to be a box or a bag and insulation. And so these are just kind of infrastructure and logistics challenges of today or seven years ago. And so I left and started Books to try to solve this problem. And I think initially the idea was to be more focused around food containers but we found out pretty quickly, and I know some, some other guests of yours have talked about things like this too, that it's extremely difficult. <laughs> there are so many challenges with single-use food containers that we took a step back and thought, okay, well, we know that reuse and circular economy is the right direction, but maybe let's not start with the hardest possible products. And so we said, well, if we could develop the system of reuse with a simpler physical product, then we could then apply that in the future to all sorts of reusables. 
Right. And so we set about with my co-founder, Bob Walton, we set about to launch Books. And the first product we called Books Box or just a Books. And it obviously intended to be a little play on the word box. And it's a reusable box. And it's really designed to replace single-use cardboard shipping boxes. So it's not all packaging. It's very specifically targeting cardboard boxes. Got it. Yeah. And can you talk a bit about the environmental impact of, let's say, whatever the average solution out there, let's say cardboard boxes or plastic bags versus your solution looks like? What is the comparison in terms of environmental impact? Yeah, so there's roughly 200 billion shipments globally every year. Cardboard boxes are the vast majority of, of them. Plastic poly bags are gaining traction in a lot of places. But really, boxes are necessary for things that are fragile or need to be protected. Our solution, which is that you can return a books box so it can be reused again at scale. And when it works, importantly, and we'll get to this challenge soon, when it works correctly and people do it, we have the potential to reduce the overall impact of that shipment by 70% or more. And the reason that it's or more so there's all sorts of different kinds of cardboard boxes. Some are better for the environment than others. They could be made from recycled product. They could not be. And then the number of times that you return a books box and the number of times it ultimately gets reused means that we could continually reduce the overall system's impact, right? So if we get them back five times, but then they reach end of life, or if we get them back 20 times and they reach end of life, there's a different result on the impact. Today, I think we're just getting started. And so this whole idea of circular economy is new to most people. I don't think that we'll ever get to the point where 100% of these things will be returned and reused. Uh, It's just impractical for all sorts of reasons. But we hope to get to 80% or 90%. And that would be a, I mean, if it could be applied globally, you know, if Amazon started doing this, this would be an an incredible reduction in, in overall impact. Got it. And what's your initial segment? You said you started from the idea of, okay, can we use this for food being shipped? Is there any specific segment that needs this the most and that you're starting with right now in terms of using those boxes? Yeah. So we again, this was not in the original pitch deck, but we ended up having the vast majority of our clientele today, the brands that ship with Books boxes are in beauty. Uh, so cosmetics and, and wellness products. And I think the reason that is, again, kind of in retrospect, is that there's tons and tons of brands that are shipping beauty products. The products themselves are small, often plastic packaged things. And there's this kind of general feeling from consumers that that's bad, right? But there's billions and billions of things shipped every year. And so I think that there's a certain amount of kind of marketing and perception of sustainability that these companies are seeking. And a lot of them are digitally native. You know, they don't have stores or or maybe they sell in Sephora or, or Ulta or some other brick and mortar retail stores, but most of them just sell online direct to consumers. And so the first time you receive a product, like the first time you interact with a product from one of these brands is when it lands on your doorstep and it comes in a box. And if that's a cardboard box, that's pretty normal. It wouldn't be surprising. If it's a books box, there's this moment of, oh, what is this? What is this thing that's on my doorstep? They look very different than cardboard boxes. And so there's this little moment of pause that's very critical for us, which is, oh, hey, this is special. And as you mentioned at the top, and this is true at our household too, we probably get seven to 10 cardboard boxes a week. There could be a little pile of cardboard boxes on your doorstep. If one of them looks different, it's very important that it stands out from the crowd. My daughter was six at the time that she said this, but it was like the most genius marketing thoughtfulness. I was explaining to her, dad's going to be starting this company and we're going to make a box. It's going to look just like a cardboard box, but it's going to be reusable. And she said, why should it look just like it? It should be rainbow or it should be bright pink. And she was 100% correct. And that like kind of this little moment for the consumer when they say, hey, this is different, is so critical to our existence, to our marketing efforts, to our growth. And so we found that these cosmetics companies were really eager to differentiate their brand 
and I'm almost 40, when I was a kid, it wasn't cool to be sustainable, right? People weren't seeking out brands because they were green or because they were more sustainable. Now they are. And so these cosmetics companies are thinking like, hey, how can we distinguish our product? Our physical products are maybe similar to this other company, but we could be the cleanest one, right? Or the greenest one. And so Books is a tool to reduce your impact, but also to differentiate your brand. And critically, we're now demonstrating that switching to Books actually improves your bottom line because of customer retention and acquisition and customer loyalty. And so like, that's a very important point. It's not just like, here's a premium service that's more expensive, but it's greener and there's a trade-off. Now we can say this is good for the planet, good for your customers, and good for your business. And that's absolutely like we had to get to that point. Like we knew we had to get there somehow, and we're finally getting there. Got it. Amazing. I'd love you to talk about logistics and customer experience behind this, right? So if I order from one of the partner retailers that you work with, I'm likely to get one of those nice boxes. Then I take my stuff out. Maybe I decide to return some stuff, in which case I assume I return the box with the stuff I'm returning. But then if I want to keep everything, do I have to then ship it back to the retailer? Do I ship it back to you? How does it work? Yeah, great question. And so this was a part of our kind of early R&D. The theory was, okay, if we give you something and it's reusable, consumer receives it, it has to be pretty convenient because, you know, in, in the U.S., if you throw something away, you put it in a bin, somebody comes to your home and takes it away, right? So you can't get too much more convenient than that. Um, in the U.K. and in the EU and elsewhere, in most places, tell me if you disagree, but consumers are used to taking their trash or their waste somewhere else, right? So you don't always have curbside or home pickup. And so it's a slightly different challenge depending on the market. But in both cases, the consumer is asked to take their used books box. They fold flat in kind of a nifty way, kind of an origami-like way, and you can drop them off. There's no rush. And so there's no urgency to do it. But we just want to know that you're not throwing it away. And in the US, we have a partnership with about 8000 retail locations where you can drop it off locally. And it's, there's a QR code that the cashier scans and you're done as a consumer, nothing else to do. In the UK, we have a partnership with a smart locker company. So you walk up to a smart locker, scan the QR code, a little door pops open and you stuff it in and you're done. I think there's something like 6000 locations in the UK alone. So it's pretty dense coverage there. And the idea is to make it just as convenient as getting a cup of coffee or if you're on your way to work and you're catching the train, you can return your, your reusables at that moment. So it is very much building this system and this platform to enable the reverse logistics, as you mentioned, which I think is more critical than the actual physical product. And although we did develop our own physical products, the future for this is we hope not to, right? We hope to operate the network and then anybody that has any kind of reusable could live on that network and move things around. Got it. And then let's zoom in on the value proposition for the retailer. You already mentioned that beyond just the sustainability argument, it's also just kind of standing out from the rest. I mean, especially the early adopters, half my deliveries are books boxes already. So at the moment, it's the chance to be a pioneer and stand out and customize the box to stand out as well. But I guess the question is from a cost point of view, I assume the books boxes would initially cost a bit more. Uh, obviously, they reuse, so they're more they reused, the lower the shipment costs are. So talk us a bit through uh, as much as you can share on like the cost and return rates. Like you always have to get the customers to actually return it eventually. How does that work? Yeah, so we looked at a few existing examples of reuse systems and tried to develop a business model that actually works today for our brand partners and actually makes financial sense. So I was in operations and fulfillment previously. If you go to somebody, to a brand and say, this is going to reduce your impact, your customers are going to love it, but it costs 10 times more than what you're currently doing, they're going to say no. I think it's just a reality of business today. 
there are some companies that will spend a premium to do the greener or more sustainable thing. It's usually because they believe at some level that they'll recoup that investment, right? And so you can't expect a company to just switch just because it's the right thing to do if it affects their bottom line, you know, especially if it's a public company and they have shareholders and they have things to be focused on. So we knew from the day one that this has to make financial sense. It can't just be, oh, you have to do it because it's for the planet. That's unfortunately not enough to get companies to switch. So just recently, as of January of 2022, we hit our own economies of scale where we are now directly competitive with the cost of branded cardboard boxes with Boots, which is super exciting. It made our sales team's jobs a lot easier because they could go to a company and say, you're not going to increase your costs at all. These work, these plug right into existing supply chain, no changes from operations, and we'll take care of it after you ship. And so the way that our model works is a little bit different than how some others work, where you might purchase upfront these reusables right, and have an initial investment that then you slowly recoup after many uses. We treat it more like you could call it a rental model where you're just paying a fee every time you ship. And that fee is comparable to buying a cardboard box, if that makes sense. So you should be paying roughly the same as what you're currently paying per shipment. There's no penalty if the books box is not returned. So we shoulder that burden, right? We take on that risk. And so unlike, I think, again, some other examples of companies that do this, we are very incentivized to encourage your customers to return the books boxes because it saves us money in the long run, right? So a lot of our efforts around consumer education and marketing to prop up the brands that are shipping with books so that we get more returns back because it's good for our business. Got it. Amazing. And so basically the retailer has pretty much nothing to do with the returns process. You're handling that for them. I assume you may in some cases have to remove like old labels from the boxes, slightly polish them before they can be reused again, right? How does it work? Refurbish is the right word. Yeah. So we do this kind of triage exercise when they come back to our warehouse, uh, which is that some have reached end of life, right? Some have been run over by the UPS truck and they're done. We design them very carefully to be extremely recyclable when they do reach end of life. So the same, the book's material is 100% monomaterial. It can go right through, be processed mechanically, not chemically, and be turned back into another books box. And that recycling process is something like 95 or 98% efficient, which is much more efficient than a cardboard box recycling. So at every stage of its life, it is it has the potential to be better for the planet. But as you pointed out, people have to do it, right? And consumers have to participate. And so I think back to like what have the challenges been, getting consumers to shift behavior is probably the biggest challenge we've had and will continue to have in that there's 50 or maybe even 100 years worth of consumer behavior, which is that you buy a thing and you throw away the packaging and you keep the thing. And that simple idea is very hard to change at scale. It's happening. And I see a future. It, it, said today it would be rare to get a boots box, which is absolutely true. There's a future where it's not necessarily just boots boxes, but where every package that you receive comes in some kind of reusable packaging or shipping packaging. And you're starting to see it in very progressive countries that they're going to outlaw single-use products, right? And so like, it's just a matter of time. I think that we're pretty early in that arc of getting there. But there's going to be a moment, this inflection moment, right? When enough big companies switch, it just becomes the way that you do it, right? It's no longer like, here's a greener way to ship. It's just, this is how shipping works. And that's certainly what we're working towards. Got it. So beyond, obviously, the regulatory side of things that keeps pushing the agenda on sustainability and that could work in your favor in terms of your environmental mission and your company as well, my question would be a bit around what else kind of the key levers for you to get customers to return the boxes? Is there any sort of rewards, incentives or communication? What are you working on to make sure that you increase those return rates and you get more and more boxes back? 
Yeah, good question. So all of those things are correct, in fact, and we're experimenting with a variety of them. One of the more exciting ones that, that really aligns the incentives on the whole circle is that we've now done a few kind of A-B tests and experiments where the brand that's shipping. So let's say you order from Ren Skincare. This is one of our partners in the UK. They're owned by, company owned by Unilever. If you order something from Ren Skincare, it shows up in a books box. And what we're starting to think about is what if they gave you 20% off your next purchase when you returned your books box? And it's an incentive. And we have to fiddle with exactly what the right exact amount is that makes sense for everybody that's involved. But the reality is that those types of incentives usually lead to additional purchases, customer retention, uh, and engagement uh, at some level. And those are extremely valuable, right? Those things are worth a lot more than the 20% discount. And so if we can align those incentives with the environmental goal of reusing, now it's a win-win, right? Everybody wins in that circle. And so we're starting to do that. The other one that, that's pretty exciting that we're doing in the U.S. Um, is that you're going to start to see when you go to Books Box that Books, the company, is going to be encouraging you to send back used clothing in your Books. And so this idea was how do we incentivize the return and also monetize the return process? And so you have an empty container sitting in front of you. You know, you just bought a pair of sneakers or shoes or whatever, and you kept them. And now you have an empty box. You can put stuff in that box. And we've started to see what types of things people want to, we say, declutter your home, reduce waste, uh, keep things out of the landfill, uh, and all this type of messaging. And it turns out that people find this to be a very valuable service. Right? Everybody's got a pair of jeans or an old shirt or something in their closet that they don't really need. 50% of those items end up in landfills, unfortunately, today. And textile waste is a huge challenge. We don't want to tackle too many things as a startup, but these all kind of tie together in the idea that if you can keep things out of the landfill, extend the life of products and packaging, we can really make a pretty big impact. And so now we're starting to say, like, what else can you put in this books box when you return it? And in that case, we can even pay you. Right? So instead of it being a, an inconvenience to have to do this additional chore, now you're getting a valuable service out of it. We've started to do it at very early stage, but it's already showing signs that it, it'll be part of the process in the future. Amazing. Yeah, I talked to a founder yesterday, actually, that's running a startup in the Netherlands called Buy Waste. And their business is solely that element that you just mentioned in terms of getting people to ship their old electronics, clothes, any kind of items that could be refurbished or recycled, etc. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think it's quite a compelling uh, value prop as well. But I mean, same thing with the discounts as well. So yeah, good luck with those experiments as well. And sounds like a good value proposition to people. I was just going to add on that note that one of the more important things about working on an impactful challenge is that we see other companies like that as partners, not as competition. And I think that's so important because we have venture capital investors, like we need to beat the competition in most cases. But we also have this feeling we're a B Corp, we're a mission driven company. We have this feeling that if unless we all win, none of us win. You may have heard this slogan. And it's not meant to be this doom and gloom, we're all going to die when the planet explodes kind of attitude. But it is one that like, unless we all work together to solve this massive problem, nobody's going to solve it. And so I, I'll just put it out there. You know, we're always looking for partners like that in new markets where we can combine our services and make the whole thing more impactful. And so I'm sure your listeners and also your other founders, there's often ways to work together on a big problem like that. Amazing. Big call to action to get in touch if you're one of running one of those startups. Yeah. And I'd like to shift gears a little bit into your entrepreneurial lessons learned. When you introduced yourself in the beginning, you mentioned a few things that I'd like to pick up again and talk about. The first thing 
that you mentioned is actually your kind of first business uh, running a restaurant. And I'm keen to learn a bit like what are kind of the biggest entrepreneurial lessons you've learned from that experience. You said at times it was maybe quite painful to, you know, like to some painful lessons learned, it seemed between the lines. So I would love to uh, learn like what's been some of the hardest challenges there or even in the current business that taught you a big lesson and that others can use. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things from Restaurant Life and that we're very much, even for other companies I work for and that we're very much applying at Books now is to take care of your employees. There is no other greater resource that you have as a company than the people that are working on this problem. And if they're not confident in their job, feeling supported, feeling like they have all the tools they need to be successful, they won't be and you won't be. And I think it's so critical, especially in this day and age, to give people good benefits, to, to make them feel heard, to make sure there's a, an open door policy on I'm not happy or I have a question. And restaurant industry, it's very hard. Anybody out there has run a restaurant. Labor is a huge part of your expense. There was, I think, in a somber way, the kind of the moment that I knew I had to leave the restaurant industry is when I was looking around the room on a busy night. And, you know, these people that I'd worked very closely with for a long time, that were friends, and I was seeing dollar signs. It's, oh, boy, like, we got to cut labor over here. This is a big expense, and we have to reduce payroll. And when you start to think of people as expenses, something's not right, right? Something about the business is not working, or just your priorities are in the wrong order. And it's challenging restaurants because it's a huge part of your expense. Make sure that you're budgeting properly for the people that you need. And I think in a strange way, the reverse is true. I think if you can do more with fewer people, you should. And instead of having 10 people on your team, have seven and pay them all a little bit better. <laughs> and I guarantee that the return on that outweighs having three extra people. And that's very much like an early phase startup thing. At some point, you need all your team members and experts and whatever else. But I've heard so many stories about people that went out and hired this giant team and just ran out of money in six months. And that's not good for anybody. Right? Like, Will those people find other jobs? Probably. But it's a big deal to sign a document and say you're going to go work for a company and I think too often we don't treat that with as much respect as you should. It's can be life-changing to switch your job, right? For somebody and their, for their family, and maybe you move for your job. And if it's not there six months later, then you've really shaken up your life. So I think founders, CEOs, uh, whoever, make sure that you're trying your best. And it's startup life, you know, you don't know what's going to happen, but make sure you're trying to take care of your people and uh, looking ahead and understanding that, you know, you might feel like your company could fail and that's okay. And you're going to fail 10 times and then be successful. But like, all those other people are coming along with you and it's, it should be a big honor for them to work for you. I think it's a very, very timely lesson that you're sharing here as a lot of companies have last year embarked on this hyper growth mission of like, oh, we're always going to access capital very cheaply forever and we're just going to hire like crazy and now you have all these big layoffs, right? With a lot of these companies where you sometimes ask yourself, why do you even have that many employees rather than building a truly sustainable business that every employee has a purpose, is well paid and there to drive business outcomes, which then even if you go into a downturn, hopefully you won't have to let people go, right? And this is related, and I'm not suggesting that we're going to be wildly successful. I think we will be, but we'll see. And we'll check back in in a year or so and see if this has come to fruition. But we started Books just before the pandemic struck. Obviously, could not have anticipated this, and nobody did. And it's a once, hopefully, once-in-a-lifetime uh, situation. 
but we were very frugal about hiring people and spending our money. And I, I do think that it will ultimately mean that the organization is much better off and our company culture is much better off for it. There were times when myself and my co-founder were thinking, like, oh, God, I wish we had three more people. You know, we're all doing 10 jobs and we need an accountant and we need another engineer and we need a designer and, and whatever else. But we were very slow to hire people. And now we look like geniuses, right? <laughs> it's like, it's like oh, that, that worked out great. Couldn't have possibly predicted that. But I think you never know when some world change event is going to happen. And there's been several, right? There's been three or four world-changing events in the past couple of years. And just be a little more conservative, I think, than the previous era of startups was. Related to that is, I think, and this might be an unpopular opinion, but like people often say, oh, don't dilute yourselves too much with capital. I've never heard of a startup that said, oh, we raised too much money. That's never been a complaint, right? You've heard a lot of like, we failed or we were undercapitalized. You never hear, yeah, we got too much money. So that's pretty tough. And this is like a founder mental health thing also. It is, you know, when you have 20 people that work for you and their jobs and livelihood depend on the success of the company, it is very stressful to have to think about fundraising and think, oh, I'm not sure, you know, we have six months of runway or one month of runway or whatever it is. Just take the money. <laughs> it's my advice. If somebody wants to give you more money for your company, take it, use it wisely. If you get diluted one more percentage point, the company ends up being worth a billion dollars, you'll still be fine. And so that, you know, I think if that's what you're working towards it to be this high growth thing, take the dilution, take the money, and you'll be way better off for it. Uh, that's some good advice. And you've raised quite a bit as well. And you've raised about 20 million so far, if I can believe Crunchbase. Not, no, not quite. Let's see, we've raised 11.25 today. Yeah. All right. Okay. Still, that's what I mean. Like That's a huge amount of money. I don't want to suggest that it's not. And you see these companies that are raising 20 million with no revenue, and it's wild times still. But those times will change. And I think the successful, long-term, sustainable businesses, from a financial point of view, will have been frugal and conservative when they should be. Got it. The other theme that I'd like to explore during the last few minutes before we wrap up is what you mentioned It may have been specific to the restaurant business, but you mentioned that you realized that you enjoyed starting the restaurant and you enjoyed starting stuff, but not actually operating it. Do you feel that was something specific to that? Or is it like a personality trait generally? Because I find in a lot of founders, actually, they enjoy this process of founding, starting new things, and they don't necessarily enjoy operating as much. Or they may enjoy it, but they really depend on really building that team to be able to focus on starting new initiatives. Where are you on that spectrum? And if that's a personality trait for you, how did you still manage to build a successful company so far without losing interest on operations? Yeah, I feel like I think the answer is yes, I really like doing new things. And that is a very typical entrepreneurial trait, right? That you want to be trying new things and pushing boundaries and that kind of thing. And I think we found a happy medium where, yeah, hire great people that can run the day to day successfully and be challenged and be excited about it. But also, we still feel like at this stage anyway, that there's new things every day. And part of being in an industry that is cutting edge in many ways, right? We're part of the circular economy, we're building this reuse system, we're getting involved in re-commerce and resale. Like, these are all pretty new ideas. I think it's very critical for books that we stay at the forefront of all those ideas and not become just a logistic service or something like that. We want to be demonstrating to other companies what's possible. We want it to be new and fresh all the time. I think that's interwoven into our company culture at this point. And it means that we do new things every day. One of, one of the realities of not 
hiring a huge team is that I'm still doing all sorts of things that maybe CEO shouldn't be doing, but it means they're different every day. It keeps me excited and interested. We have a long way to go because of the nature of what we're doing, where we'll be doing new things for quite a long time. So I'm still excited about it and will continue to be for a long time. Absolutely. It's definitely something that I've struggled with personally, or I still struggle with to some degree. I've been on the other side, on the investor side of things, investing in companies, but I've never fundraised. I've always bootstrapped, but then also staying focused while bootstrapping, feeling the pressure to, okay, we got to really figure out what works. So I'm like inclined to start 10 experiments to all test everything. And then you get distracted very quickly. And yeah, I'm definitely in that personality trait as well of like starting being a starter. So yeah. One, one more note about that. I think do the 10 experiments, but after you get the results, make sure you go with purpose in that direction. I'm not claiming that Books's team is the best at it, but I think we're getting really good at making decisive actions when necessary. And maybe this goes back to some of the advice too. We don't have to solve the future state yet, whether that's fundraising or some growth metric or a new market or something. That's where we need to get to now. And we'll worry about the other stuff in the future. Right? We don't need to build the foundations for this future state yet. We need to just get over the next hump. And so many companies fail at this stage, right? And then we might, but that's an important thing. It's like, be very focused on what's right in front of you and solving that until you get to a place where you're profitable or break even or something. And then you can start to think, okay, now how do we plan five years from now? What does the company look like? Amazing. Uh, one last question is, if you imagine 10 years from now, how does the world look like if Books is successful? Yeah, as so I mentioned, my daughter Lily, I should also mention my other daughter Clara at the same time, so she's not left out. But my daughter Lily is eight. And the vision that we have and that really gets me excited is that this is a problem. I mean, the problem of single use packaging or single use waste is truly solvable at some level. It's not 100%, but it's 80%, 90%. My dream is that when she has her own apartment or house or whatever it is, that she never gets a cardboard box to her door, right? And I think this is actually doable. I mean, the at the pace at which things change, it's a moonshot a little bit, but it's not totally crazy. By the time she's receiving packages to her own door, they're all reusable. And that's doable within 10 years. The utopian vision is that these things are now reusable that just move around the world constantly. They never get thrown away. You never need a new one. And there's a finite number. It's a lot. It's a billion, probably. But there's a finite number of containers that could carry all the world's shipments forever. And the amount of waste that would be saved and and impact reduced would be huge. But really, yeah, I want to see the look on my daughter's face when this has succeeded is definitely a driving force for me. Can't wait for that and can't wait to catch up again (laughs) in the future. I should definitely catch up with you offline because there's been a few podcast guests at, I think, their UK retail companies, they're like looking for packaging solutions all the time. So let's catch up on that. But it was a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Really good to have you. And thanks so much for making the time, Matt. Likewise. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.